Amen and amen. If you would turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk, chapters, we'll be looking at chapters 1 and chapters 2. As we continue with our sermon series, Repentance for Revival, while you're turning that, uh, just as I sat and I listened to that wonderful, wonderful chorus and, and thought, I'm just so incredibly thankful for the people that God has placed in our church family to lead us to the throne of God through music, whether it's Nathan or, or any one of our praise team um, they, they spend more hours than you would know making that happen. And uh, certainly this week with Agape Fest, they've spent a lot. Yeah, that's worth. And uh, just so thankful for them and what, how God continues to use them. Agape Fest was, was wonderful as always, and there's a lot of time and effort that goes into that. And uh, to see the seeds that are planted, to know that God's using that for his glory and his kingdom, and uh, then to, for them to turn around and, and to lead us in worship this morning, even though like, you know, Abilene's hands at one point I think were twice the size they should be and are blue and like people are losing voices and uh, they, they want to be here and they want to lead. They don't do it for recognition, but we're thankful for that. And we hope that if you have a gift or a talent, maybe it's music, maybe it's an instrument, maybe it's something completely different, you have an opportunity to do the same thing, to lead us to the throne through what God has gifted you in. And we'll hope that you'll take advantage of that. Come talk to us about that. We want to, to see that come together as a family where he has put different bits and pieces in place that we can worship together uh, in marvelous and creative ways. And so we hope that you'll take advantage of that. This morning we come to Habakkuk chapter 1 and chapter 2 as we uh, come, we wind down this sermon series that we've been in since uh, September, I think, uh, and looking through these four minor prophets and we come to a divine conversation. It's unlike really anything other than maybe Job that we see throughout Scripture, this back and forth between the prophet Habakkuk and God himself in response. And yet in this divine conversation that happens, what we see is our path to hope. And so this morning, if you would, please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word and we get to listen in on a divine conversation between the prophet and our God. We are going to be reading sections this morning. So we're not going to read the whole, the whole two chapters. We're going to do the first part of chapter 1. And then we're going to jump over and do the first part of chapter 2. Chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And then jumping over to chapter 2, starting in verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. 
It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful. We're thankful that we serve a God who is good and and is righteous and is just. And we are thankful for your creation and we are thankful for the salvation that you offer. And we are thankful that we know the author of all things. Lord, we are thankful for this season when we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ and the hope that comes with him. And we are thankful that when we are confused, when we are grief-stricken, when we are unsure of the path ahead, that you invite us into your presence and that we can ask questions. And that we can expect with great certainty response. We ask that you would give us the faith and the understanding and the trust to receive those responses well and to look forward to the great hope that you have promised. Father, we pray all of these things in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Give you a little bit of background about Habakkuk. Not a whole lot, um, frankly, because we don't know a whole lot. Like you research and you look at Habakkuk, and really what we know largely comes from the book that, that we have in front of us and from what he has written, what God has led him to write and record here in the Scriptures. But Habakkuk is a prophet in the southern kingdom of Israel, in Judah, And he is writing probably roughly around the same time as Nahum. But while Nahum looks to Assyria and talks about what is coming for them, Habakkuk's prophecy and Habakkuk's writing and message largely deals with Judah and its capital Jerusalem and what's happening there at that moment. They had had a period just before this of revival. Uh, an incredible time when uh, the king returned to following God and they were able to see the, the temple doors reopened and worship there restarted. And it was, it was a good time. And God blessed at that time. However, that did not last very long. And it was not long until another king arose and there was, again, idol worship and a jealousy and greed And different parts of of just human nature creeping back into the nation as a whole. And it's because of this, this evil that creeps back into the kingdom of Judah, that Habakkuk cries out to God. And he begins this, this divine conversation, asking God a couple of questions and and observing some things as he sees them, and then God responding to those questions in kind. And so we step this morning, as we step into chapter 1 and chapter 2, we step into that conversation. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to go through that conversation together to look at Habakkuk's questions, to look at God's responses, and then to 
to take those things, to take what we observe there, and then to apply it to ourselves. Because certainly the questions that Habakkuk is asking are questions that we still ask today. And they are questions that are very relevant for our time and our country and our world. So the prophet then starts this conversation with a question. And as a whole, the question can, and his, his statement can be summarized by this. Will evil continue in Israel? Will evil continue in Israel? Look with me at chapter 1, verse 2. It says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk looks at the situation around him. He looks at his hometown. He looks at the people that live there. He looks at his country and he says, this is not good. This is not good. Morally, we have sunk to the bottom. And he, he begins to ask the Lord, how long will this evil continue? How long will we continue to see it happen? How long will we continue to experience it? Will you ever... Bring justice so that the righteous prevail. It's a question that is not unlike what we see in other texts and throughout Scripture. It's a question that is not unlike what Job asked after all of the tragedy that befalls him. It's not a question that's unlike what we see some of the things in Judges. It's not a question that's unlike what we see throughout the Psalms when David cries out, How long will the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer? It's not unlike questions that we see the disciples ask Jesus. It's not unlike the question that John is responding to in the book of Revelation. The whole book of Revelation in part is a response to the question of the early church. How long will this go on? And it's not unlike the question that we ask today. You look at the news. You read the paper. And it's not hard to be discouraged, to see evil abound, to see war and rumors of war. It's not hard to see famine and destruction, disease. It's not hard to find us celebrating, the media celebrating what, what God calls evil. It's not hard to see evil even and sin creep into the church, that we have accepted some things that God says, what are you doing? And we get discouraged and we ask, how long? How long is this going to continue? How long before you come again? How long before evil is destroyed? How long before a new creation and a new heaven and perfection? How long before heaven? How long? God, in his grace and his mercy, responds. I want us to contemplate and not skip over this for a moment. Not to, not to just read past this, but to understand something really quickly. Think about this. This is the God of the universe. This is the sovereign God over all of history. 
This is the perfect holy God that is larger than we can ever imagine. This is the God that when Isaiah sees a vision of him, Isaiah says, woe is me because I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be in your presence. That's the God that Habakkuk is asking the question of, and God answers him. Job asked the question, and God answers him. David asked the question, and God gives reply. The church asked the question, and God responds in his word. The God of all the universe, who is powerful over all things, who is holy over all things, who is righteous and just, he answers the prayers and the questions of his people. That is worth an amen in and of itself. Despite whatever response is given, God speaks to us and he invites us to ask him questions. Habakkuk asked the question, how long will Judah continue to have evil inside of it? How long will the people continue to, to walk away before you do something about it, God? God's response is, don't you worry. It's going to come to an end. God's response is, the injustice and the evil that is rampant in Israel and Judah will end. Going to chapter 1, verse 5, it says, he says in answer to Habakkuk, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God's response to Habakkuk is, your vision is limited. Your human understanding of what is happening in the world and what is happening in the context of history and the future is limited. It's this much. This much, you can't even begin to see the whole story of what is happening. And then he tells him what's happening. He says, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. It's another word for the Babylonians, another name. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. God's response, in essence, is, don't you worry. I've got it. I, I'm, I'm taking care of the evil that's in Judah. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, and the Babylonians are going to come in, and they're just going to sweep through Judah. And that's what we would see happen. In the time to come, after Habakkuk, that's exactly what happened. Israel would continue to not follow God. They would continue to, to do evil. And eventually, though they are warned time and time and time again to stop and to repent, eventually what happens is the Babylonians come in. They completely decimate Judah. They destroy the capital, Jerusalem. They tear down the walls. They tear down the temple of Solomon. They leave it in, in utter ruin. And they take the people of Israel and they march them out of the promised land, the great exile where God's people are removed from, the, from God's land. God says, I'm taking care of it. I'm still in control. I haven't turned a blind eye. Israel will be disciplined. It's kind of like the child, the child that complains to mom and tattles on the sibling and is like, well, how long are you going to let them get away for, with that? How long are, are they going to get to do that? And the parent looks at the child and says, hey, I'll, you take care of you, is what my dad always told me. You take care of you. I'll take care of them. When I was young, that frustrated me. 
As I got older, I realized, oh, he's going to take care of them. And if I don't stop talking, he's going to take care of me too. But God looks at Habakkuk and he says, you take care of you, I'll take care of them. But when he gives the answer, he says, the Babylonians are coming. They're going to wipe the floor. It's going to be a complete desolation. I got to think that at least a little bit, based on Habakkuk's response, that Habakkuk's like, that's not exactly what I was thinking. In fact, he goes on, Habakkuk goes on here and he talks about well, how, why would you use the Babylonians of all people? You're going to use them to judge us? I think Habakkuk here in his mind was thinking, you know, I was thinking a little bit something more like revival. I was thinking a little bit more like people would actually start listening to what I'm preaching and change. That sounds like a good idea. Why don't we do that? Or maybe even I would be okay, God, with you opening a hole and just taking the evil people down and then closing that hole out. You've done that before. Let's go with that. Why are you going to bring in the Babylonians? Again, kind of going back to my childhood, and maybe, maybe you're learning more about me as a child than you really should. But going back to my childhood, there were times when I didn't ask dad questions, even if I wanted a situation to change, because I knew there were two outcomes that neither one I liked. One was that dad would ask questions that, I didn't really want him to ask about how that situation came about in the first place. And so it was like, "Eh, maybe I don't want him digging too far. The second thing was that dad would solve the issue, but not in a way that was suitable to me. And that was even worse. And so again, it was like, "Eh, maybe I just won't ask. I think Habakkuk has a little bit of that in him right now. He's like, I've brought up the evil of Judah. I want God to take care of the evil of Judah, to be just and to be fair. And then he finds out that justice and fairness is the Babylonians coming in and destroying everything. And so he asks another question. He says, how can you use an unrighteous nation to judge Israel? He says in verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Notice he's like, uh, This is not what you've promised. This is not what I thought was going to happen. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? In other words, Habakkuk's saying, okay, I wanted you to deal with the problem, but you're going to use the Babylonians to come in and deal with the problem? Do you know how evil they are? He begins to describe after what we just read about all the things that the Babylonians were known to do, about dragging people literally away in nets. That's not just allegory that he's using there. It's not just symbolism. That was what they did. They would put people in nets and drag them somewhere else. He's like, you're going to use them? How can you use an unrighteous people to to discipline your people? I don't I don't see how that makes sense. But what we're reminded of is that that God is the author of the whole story, not just the good parts. He's the author of the whole story, not just the righteous things. Certainly, we have responsibility and people have responsibility for the choices they make. We do evil. 
God is not responsible for the decisions that we make. However, one of the interesting things about Christianity is that we don't look at, at evil and say, what a waste. But rather, we know that God uses what people intend for evil for good. He says it again and again in his scripture. That God takes the evil intentions of people and he uses it for his purposes. We see it in the story of Joseph. Remember his brothers hated him. They were jealous of him. They put him in a, in a hole. They sold him into slavery. What does God do? God takes that evil intention. He raises Joseph up and Joseph ends up saving his whole family along with millions of others. Evil intention, God authors it and uses it for good. Now, did it surprise God that they did that evil thing? No. He knew it, and he just wrote the story. He used it for his good intentions. He says the same thing of Pharaoh. Pharaoh and Moses are going back and forth about Israel leaving and leaving slavery, and what does God tell Pharaoh? He says, I've hardened your heart so that I may use you to display my glory. Pharaoh made all of his own decisions. Pharaoh made all of his own choices. But God says, your choices are not a waste. They are not in vain. I'm going to use them to show the world my glory. God says, yes, the Babylonians are an awful people. They're an evil people. But I'm going to use them to discipline my people. I'm going to use them for a moment. But in response to your question, Habakkuk, how can I use them? Don't worry about them. All will be judged. He says, yeah, I'm going to use them for a time period. I'm going to use them to discipline Israel. They're, even though they are evil and they're making evil choices, it's not outside my control. And again, don't worry about them. You look at the rest of chapter 2. Uh, what we did not read after the passage, and you see God respond to the Babylonians with five woes. He says, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. And then you can see the rest of them there. Woe who gets evil. Woe to who builds a town with blood. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. Um, in other words, who shames those that are around him. Woe to the one who worships idols. Okay, he pronounces five woes, five curses, you might say, upon the Babylonians. Again, he tells Habakkuk, I've got this under control. You're asking me what I'm doing with, from a place of you not understanding, but you trust me that I know what I'm doing, that I'm just, that I'm holy, that I'm righteous. Habakkuk's having this back and forth, and, and Habakkuk is in his questioning is exposing the heart of all of humanity that we are all about the here and now. And we're unable to see the bigger story of what God is doing and what he is accomplishing. We get so worried about the injustice that we find against ourselves that we fail to understand that God will take care of it. As we said at the beginning, though, as we look at this divine conversation and Habakkuk's back and forth with God about what God is going to do with evil, what we see there is a roadmap of how we, can, how we as Christians in this world at this time, how we can respond to evil that we see. Again, we don't have to look far, right? We don't have to, to look at the news very long. We don't have to read the papers. We don't have to listen to the, the, the community gossip very long to know that there is evil in our midst, to know that bad things are happening whether they're happening to us, whether they're happening to loved ones, 
whether happening to our community or around the world, whether it's war, whether it's destruction, whether it's abortion, whether it's relationships crumbling and families dissolving, whether it's war, or I think I've already said that, whether it's disease or whatever, we see it all the time. How are we to respond to that? I think Habakkuk gives us the roadmap. And so just for, just for the next few minutes, just I want you to follow along with me. How do we respond to evil? What, what are we here to do? And then on the flip side of every one of those, we're going to talk about, okay, but these are some things that maybe we shouldn't do. Some things that we should understand that are, are outside of our ability or places that we should not go. So we see first responding to evil. First, we see from Habakkuk that we can ask questions. We can ask questions. I think sometimes as, as Christians, as believers, that we, we get a little shy around God and we think that we can't come to him with questions. We know we can come to him with thanksgiving. We know that we should come to him with thanksgiving and with praise. We know that we can come to him with requests in the, in the sense of, hey, my, my dog is sick and would you please make him better? And we, we do that. We come with requests and certainly much more serious things than, than that. But I think very rarely do we think we can enter into the presence of God and say, God, I don't understand why this is happening. We think somehow we're going to offend him. We think somehow that that's going to blow his mind and be like, well, I, I don't know what to do with that. No, he's the God of the universe. He's the writer of all of history. I'm pretty sure he can handle your questions. In fact, Job asked questions about, God, why has all of this tragedy befallen me? And at the end of the book of Job, you know what God says about Job? He says, in all these things, he did not sin. Now, he says different things about his friends, right? His friends, not so much. But Job did nothing wrong in asking the question, why? David did nothing wrong in asking the question, why? Habakkuk does nothing wrong in asking the question, how long? You can ask him questions. However, we need to understand that while he answers, we may not always understand. Going back to chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. He says, Habakkuk, I'm going to tell you the answer to your question, but it is going to rock your world. Like, it's going to blow your mind. You're never going to believe what's going to happen. The same is true for us. Sometimes God looks at us, and as Dawson so, so wonderfully said earlier, sometimes God looks at us and says, you know what, I'm God, just trust me. Because even if I told you, you wouldn't believe it, and you wouldn't understand it. Now, many times he does give us an answer. Many times he lays it out before us in his word or through other things, and we get that answer. And, and it does provide comfort or satisfaction, but we need to come humbly in asking the question to understand there is a possibility that God simply looks at us and says, you wouldn't understand, just trust me. I'm sure as a parent, you've never said that to a child. But sometimes God does that because he knows we couldn't understand it. We couldn't comprehend it. It wouldn't make sense anyway. You know, one of the things as I thought about this as, as I was preparing this sermon, the same is true of the cross. 
You ever wondered why God just didn't lay it all out before Israelites and say, hey, I'm coming into the world. I'm going to be born in the flesh. I'm going to live a perfect life. I'm going to die on the cross, and then I'm going to be raised three days later. You wonder why he never told that to the Old Testament folks, much less he never really detailed it out for his disciples because they wouldn't get it. It was like, you're going to destroy evil and sin and provide a way to heaven for, the, for people through your death? I, oh, okay. It doesn't make sense. And so we need to come. We need to ask questions. When we see evil in the world, we don't understand. We respond to it by coming to the one who does and asking good questions, humbly understanding that there will be times when he says, just trust me. There will be plenty of times when he says, here's the answer. But there's other times when he says, just trust me. We respond to evil by asking questions. We also understand, respond to evil by grieving. You look at the beginning of Habakkuk, and he says that he is crying out. He says, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? How long will I cry to you violence? We look back at David in the Psalms throughout, throughout and there's a, there's a grief. There's a, a rendering of the heart that is happening. When we see evil, certainly it is, it is good, it is right, it is understandable for us to grieve. When we see war, it's right for us to grieve. When we see human suffering, to be like Christ and to grieve over that suffering. To, when we see disease and we experience those hard things, to grieve. When we see things, again, evil things that God calls sin and yet we see them celebrated in our culture and in our surroundings, it's good and it's right for us to grieve those things. To ask God to, to change them. At the same time, while we certainly grieve over evil, we should also not dwell in doubt. It's interesting here. Habakkuk asks all of these questions and he's getting the responses. And you'll notice at the beginning there's, there's some doubt. There's some immaturity in his faith. There's some distrust in God. He's, he's saying, how long are you going to wait? Are you not going to do anything about this? Why haven't you acted? Why haven't you done anything? But by the end of the book, and we're kind of giving away a little bit here for next week. But in the, by the end of the book, in Habakkuk chapter 3, he says this. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on the high places. And he says, all of this is to the choir master with stringed instruments. There is a transformation of Habakkuk from one who doubts what God's doing and doesn't, doesn't see God in action to a man who comes before the Savior and says, you are my everything and in you I trust in all ways and I will sing about it. I'm going to praise you for it. Friends, we can come and we can ask the questions. We can grieve over the evil we see, but we must be careful not to allow that grief to so ingrain itself in our body that we begin to doubt. That we begin to doubt that he is good, that he is righteous. This is why it's important to have a church family for there to be people around us that can encourage us and love on us and, and kind of, Keep some bumper zones. 
Yes, it's good to grieve over evil. It's not good to stay there. To stay there tempts bitterness. It tempts doubt. And it tempts eventually to walking away. We should not dwell in doubt. Rather, we should have hope. We respond to evil by asking questions, by grieving without doubt, and we respond to evil in knowing that we can have hope. We can have hope. One author says this in speaking of evil. He says, We must not elevate evil above its station. Nothing happens apart from God's wise and good decree. Therefore, we must not stop reading in the early chapters. In other words, don't stop at the beginning of the book. The beginning of the book is where all the bad stuff happens. Bambi's mom dies at the beginning of the movie. Don't stop there. The good stuff's at the end. He says, don't stop reading at the beginning of the chapters. The story does not stop. And so our wide lens allows us to see, or at least to trust, that Judas's betrayal will not go unpunished. That Wormtongue's lies. Wormtongue is a, as a, as a uh, character in C.S.'s book, Screwtape Letters. Wormtongue's lies will not stand. The blood of the martyrs will, in fact, bear fruit. This is a happily ever after story. This story of history that God is writing, it's a happily ever after story. Story, the kind of story where the dragons are slain and the tears are wiped away and the faithful death is always followed by resurrection. Sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Friends, we have hope. We have hope. We suffer hardship. We see evil all around us, but we do not allow it to overcome us because we have a greater author who has said it is finished. We have hope. We have hope. And so we should not think that evil wins. It is easy, again, to look around our world and to be discouraged and to think, oh man, like there's so much bad out there. But we must remember as we look at the manger, as we look at the cross, as we look at the, res- at the empty tomb and remember that it is finished and he was victorious. Habakkuk chapter 2 says something wonderful. It's what Paul held on to. It's what the disciples held on to. It's what Luther held on to. It's what the saints have held on to. It says in verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up, and it is not upright within him. He's talking about the Babylonians there. And then he uses a wonderful word. He says, but. But the righteous shall live by faith. How do we have this hope? How can we, how can we respond to evil By asking questions of God, how can we respond to evil and grief that does not lead to doubt? How can we respond to evil and hope? Because we have faith. And faith is not merely the belief in a God. It is the trust in God that he is in control. We live not just in the idea that we will live for eternity, but we live in the here and now. We live a life of abundance even in the presence of evil. How? Because we have faith that God is in control. Even as we see the chaos around us, we have belief that, and faith that God is in control. That nothing happens outside of his will. 
We have faith, not only that he is in control, but that he is all-knowing. I think sometimes we, we can get in a little bit of a pity party and we can think, well, God doesn't know what's going on. He's obviously not paying attention to me. That's what Habakkuk kind of is at the beginning of that chapter. He says, how long will I cry out? How long will I cry violence and you will not come and help me? He's basically accusing God of being blind and ignorant. No, we have faith. We have faith because we know that he is, all, he is in control and that he is all-knowing. He sees what is going on. Not only does he see what is going on, but he has had a plan to deal with it from the beginning. He knew that it was going to happen. And he's already put into motion things that we could not understand. We have a faith in that. We have a trust in that. We have a faith that God is just, that he will not allow evil to go on forever, that he will not allow evil to go unpunished. We have a faith that one day that Jesus Christ will return, that he will come again, this time not in a manger unknown to most of the world, but rather that he will come in the air and that all the trumpets will blare and he will be king of kings and lord of lords. We have a faith that someday Jesus Christ will sit on the white throne of judgment seat before him, all the peoples that have ever been born, that are living now, and that it will ever be born in the future, and that he will read from the books of history all of the things that we have ever thought, all of the things that we have ever done of all people, and that he will rightly divide the goats from the sheep, that not a single person that is, that is guilty in the law of God that has done evil will go unpunished, and not a single person who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and made innocent by his blood will suffer any harm. Praise the Lord. We have faith that he is just, and we have faith that he is good. That he's good. Friend, do you believe it when he says, I am working all things out for the good of those who trust me? Do you believe that? Or is it just words that you put on a wall in your kitchen? Or do you live by it? Even in the difficulty thing difficult things, even in the times when we feel alone, even in the times when we think that evil is overcoming everything, do we actually believe that he is working those things out for our good? Do we believe the words of second of Luke chapter 2 when the angels suddenly were there and there was a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Do we believe the Christmas message that though there is evil in the world, that God has brought in his Savior? Going back to the, the author and the article that I read earlier, this brings us to Christmas. This is what Christmas is all about. The author of the story becoming not just a character, but a human character. In this narrative, God is the storyteller and the main character. He is the bard and the hero. He, he authors the fairy tale and then comes to kill the dragon and get the girl. 
Christmas is God's definitive answer to the emotional problem of evil. The living God is not detached observer or absentee landlord. He doesn't stand aloof from suffering and pain and evil that forms the central tension of his epic. The God who is born is also the God who bleeds, the God who dies, the God who identifies with our sorrow by becoming the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. God comes down. In the person of Jesus of Nazareth, he draws to himself all of the sin and all of the shame, all the rebellion and the hate, the sickness and the death, and he swallows it whole. This is what Jesus does on the cross. The dragon is crushed and in in crushing the prince of peace. The triumphant hour of darkness and evil occurs on the day we know is Good Friday. But... In the story God is telling, evil does not have the last word. Good Friday is good because it is not the end. He bursts forth from the spice tomb on Resurrection Sunday, commissioned his disciples, ascended to the throne where he now sits until all of his enemies are subdued under his feet, including and especially evil. Oh friend, listen to this carefully. This then is the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of the Christian answer to the problem of evil. It is the confession of Jesus Christ, the divine author who never never himself does evil, but instead conquers all evil by enduring the greatest evil and thereby delivers all those enslaved and oppressed by evil who put their hope in him. O come, O come, Emmanuel. That is our hope. That is our faith, that we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the author of all of history and all that that is to come, that one day that evil and death and all of the things of this earth will be put under his feet and that we will experience perfection in his midst. This is how we celebrate Christmas because it is the hope of the coming King who has done all things and has declared it is finished. This is how we read the story of history. This is how we approach evil in our world to know that it has an end. That is worth our praise and our glory and our excitement. That is why we celebrate Christmas. Because the author of the story has stepped in and said, I win. That is how we deal with the passing of a loved one. That we know death is not the end. That it does not win. That it too will be conquered. That is why we give gifts. Because the war is over. (laughs) It has already been done. And so we can celebrate even in the here and now. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up and we're just going to have a time of response. A good and right response is to remember that God is good. (laughs) 
that he has conquered evil, that Christmas we can have hope and that we can celebrate because the Messiah has come and because he succeeded in his mission, that he resurrected from the grave. And now we look forward, not trembling, but in confidence. Good and right responses to stand to our feet and to praise him. A good and right response is to come in our, in our troubles and to ask him questions. To say, how long? Why is this happening? And then to patiently and humbly wait for his response. A good response is to go to brothers and sisters that we know that are struggling and put a hand on their shoulder and say, you're not alone. I'm praying for you. A good and right response is to say, I've never had that relationship with Jesus Christ. But I want that hope. I want that assurance. I want that life. And to make a commitment to follow him. This morning, you respond as he leads. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you. And Father, what a thing it is again, Lord, that you desire for us to come and to speak with you. Father, what a thing it is, Lord, that that we are surrounded by evil, that we know the outcome, that we know the God who authors it all, and that we can have this confidence and this hope because of our faith and our trust in you. Father, I pray, Lord, open that up in our hearts or cause it to, to spring forth life. Father, I pray, do things that only you can do. We ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.